0: (laughs) Thank you.
1: Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, uh, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. I want to begin by thanking the uh, support of our listeners. Among those, uh, I want to say thank you to Carrie. And to Paul and to uh, Dale, I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly, thank you so much for su- your support. We'll send ex- along access to our premium site, as well as any extras that we were offering during the listener support campaign. Uh, you can uh, support the show at support.greatdetectives.net. All right, well, now it's time to wrap up The Clinton Matter. And then after that, we'll introduce you to Dr. Tim Detective. But here now is The Clinton Matter, Part 5.
2: From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny
3: Deller.
4: Toby O'Brien, Johnny. Heard you had a run-in with Sheriff Doherty. They say you gave a little sundown to resign his office. Yeah, I don't think he will, though. He'll have to do something close to it. I got some information on Richard Hobb, the building inspector who was murdered. Yeah? Hob deposited $20,000 in the bank last year. What's that? Now, wait. Hobb's salary as city building inspector was $7,500 per annum. The $20,000 went in in four $5,000 deposits.
3: Holy... And now,
4: now, wait. There's more. Those deposit dates coincide with O.K.'s Hob made on the school building. He was paid off after each inspection. Johnny, we got it on
3: paper. We got some other things on paper, too, Toby. Hold on. Keep digging. To United Adjustment Bureau, 418, West 61st Street, New York City. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Clinton matter. Expense account item 15, $45. For photostatic copies of deposit slips in the account of Richard Hobb, building inspector, lately murdered. Furnished by one of my operatives, Toby O'Brien. Here you are. Okay.
4: I got a feeling this whole town's coming apart at the seams, Johnny. The sheriff threatened you openly. Everybody who's anybody around here is trying to cover up the school
3: burning down and the way it was built. I think I can hurry up the process. Now, you be careful. These people seem to play for keeps. They've got to realize we do, too. These photostats are the first real bit of presentable evidence that the building was constructed under fraudulent circumstances. Hey, take it easy. Now, you keep the originals, mail them out to the office. The post office is still pretty honest. Yeah. Also, let it out that we have the information, wherever you go. I want them to get worried and steamed up and start acting dumber than they already have been. Okay, might scare Doherty and Hanley a little bit. That Vickery
4: seems like a different proposition. I don't think he scares.
3: I drove my rented car over to the home of his grieving widow. She answered the door with tears in both eyes and bourbon over the rocks in one hand. She wore a black dress, black and satin and tight, low cut. Not exactly Emily Post for mourning. But as I say, it was black. A black lace handkerchief waved in the air.
5: Oh, Mr. Dollar, I'm glad you came by. I'm so unhappy and lost.
3: Yeah, I can see that. May I come in?
5: Why not? The sheriff hasn't done anything about about Richard's murder.
3: I wouldn't rely too heavily on Sheriff Doherty, Mrs. Hobb. I don't think he will do anything. No? Well, don't look so surprised in your hour of bereavement, Mrs. Hobb. You know he won't do anything.
5: I don't know anything of the kind. Why don't
3: you sit down and let's talk? I want you to help me.
5: I'm, I'm not sure I can help you. I'm... I'm so broken up.
3: Oh, now, if you're not careful, you might drown in those tears. What
5: are you trying
3: Relax, to... Mrs. Hobb.
5: All right. So I can't really cry about Richard. I never have. But I thought it was expected of me.
3: Some people might expect it. I don't. Now, look. This setup creaks from top to bottom. Your late husband made $7,500 a year and deposited $20,000 in six months here. Figure?
5: I don't know anything about his money. All I know is the bank told me he had only $300 left.
3: What did he do with it?
5: What do you think? He spent it on other women.
3: Then why the tragic act?
5: I'm not very good at it, am I?
3: Not the best.
5: And it's funny, Johnny, because I really mean it. Oh, I know how foolish I look in these clothes. I wanted to cry because, well, I really loved him once and he loved me, but we kicked it away because we both wanted more excitement than this town or his salary could give us. He was always out spending his money on other women, being a big shot.
3: What about the money? He got it for falsifying the inspection papers, didn't he? Yes. Who gave it to him, Mrs. Hobb?
5: I don't know. Probably Roy Vickery. Who do you think killed him? I don't know that either.
3: What do you know?
5: Johnny, he didn't leave insurance. And I have to live the best way I can. If I stay in this town, I have to keep friends. If I don't want to keep them, I have no choice but to move. And that takes money.
3: Hmm. I wonder what could possibly be going on in your mind.
5: Your company handles insurance, doesn't it?
3: 263 different kinds.
5: Are you particular what kind of premiums you collect?
3: Well, we pay off on a lot of things. Just what kind of insurance were you thinking about?
5: $2,000 endowment. Got your pen?
3: No, but my word's good at the cashier's cage. What do you got?
5: I'm trusting you. Richard got that $20,000 from the Clinton Gravel Company for services rendered. Know who owns the Clinton Gravel Company? Roy Vickery. That's close enough. Last night after you were here, Richard came back. I told him what you'd said to me. He said Vickery and the others were going to make a patsy out of him. So he left to see you.
3: And got shot up. Hey, wait, wait a minute. Vickery was outside your house when I left. He might have done it himself.
5: That's all I can tell you. Now, uh, do I get my insurance?
3: If what you say is true, Mrs. Hobb, I'll have to check first.
5: You'll find out. Say, where do you come from, anyhow?
3: Hartford, Connecticut.
5: Connecticut. Say, I got an idea. What's the housing situation in Hartford?
3: Rough. For you, Mrs. Hobb. Very rough. I finally tore myself away from the grieving widow and headed back for the hotel. On my way down the main street of Clinton, someone with a wrinkled coat and bourbon on his breath stepped out and stopped me. David Baines, the architect. Dollar. Well, hi.
2: I told you I was going to stick around and do something brave. Oh? I finally got up courage enough to do something decent. Decent for me, anyway. For anybody else, it would be too low to talk about. Well, I was it? Well, I'm not much of a lawyer, but they say there's a statute in the books that says a private citizen may commit a crime to prevent a greater crime from being committed and still go free. Is that right? I wouldn't know. Well, I committed a crime. Two crimes. Dishonor to my noble character, disappointing the trust of a young woman. That was the first one. Then, uh, an engineering a theft. I'm a fagin. That's what I am. Under the guise of loving a young female secretary eternally, I have, well, here. The purchase orders from Roy Vickery's office. The actual purchase orders for the school. What? She stole them for me. For you. With my best regards.
3: I looked at them. They were as advertised. Purchase orders complete down to the last ten-penny nail. Expense account item 16, 48 cents, postage. Not being a technical expert, I sent them down to Denver for perusal by the original brokers. Fourteen hours later, the verdict came back in a long telegram. The materials used in the school construction were not passable. The insurance company would never honor the claim of the city of Clinton. This text I turned over to Frank Ibsen, publisher of the Clinton Times. He promised it would be in the late afternoon edition. There were other developments.
4: Toby O'Brien again? Yeah, Toby. We located two witnesses to the Hob shooting. Vickery put Hob out of the way himself. Get
3: their statements and get them on a train to Denver right away. Right. Then you better gather up the rest of the boys and come over here. Right. Expense account item 17, 10 cents, one newspaper. The afternoon edition of the Times, which carried a complete story of the insurance investigation up to date, naming Vickery as the perpetrator of the school fire and involving Sheriff Doherty and Chief Hanley. I phoned Frank Ibsen and explained his next edition could carry the story of Hobb's murder by Vickery. Ibsen said he'd make up an extra for that. I'd no sooner hung up the phone than I had visitors. Wanna come with us, Dollar? Not particularly. Who are you? Deputy Egan. Sheriff Doherty wants to talk to you. I've already said all I want to say to him. Get out. Guys, yeah. on. Ah, get Hang on. him out of here. There was strictly no contest. I walked out of the room with a deputy on each side of me and Egan behind me. We were in front of the hotel when I saw Toby O'Brien, Al Davis, and John Newton coming toward the entrance. I kicked out at the nearest man and yelled for help. A few of the local citizens joined in the fight and Sheriff Doherty's three deputies got the worst of it. We took them all back up to my room. Ah, sit down. All right, Egan. You're, you're going to be arrested for this, Dollar. Where were you going to take me? Where? Place on the edge of town Clinton Gravel Works. Why? Doherty. Doherty said to bring you back. He. He wanted to see you. Who's there with him? I. I don't know. The Clinton Gravel Works was a large building and tall shaft set on the edge of a frozen lake. Parked near the entrance was a long black limousine such as a well-to-do contractor might drive. A white supercharged sedan such as a fancy western sheriff might use and a red sedan, unmistakably belonging to the fire chief. We covered all the exits and Toby O'Brien and I went in the front way. We were halfway up the steps when things began to happen. You all right? Yeah, come on. Well, Hello, Dollar. All right, lie still, Vickery. I stayed still for you, Tool. I should have put you out of the way. The same as you put Hob out of the way? Better. Ah, uh, this one's gone. Who is he? Fire Chief Hanley. Vickery, where's Doherty? He's out shooting his gun some more, Dollar. I hope he gets you, too. I hope. He's
4: back stairs, Johnny.
3: Yeah.
6: Stay away from me, Dollar.
3: The place is surrounded.
4: Throw down the gun and walk out with your hands behind your head. Toby, I'll get on the front way. Get the guys to
3: step around through the shaft. Right. You coming out? Doherty, you coming out? No. Doherty. You ought to go over a place good before you think you got a man trapped, Dollar. You're trapped, Sheriff. The men are waiting I'm for up you. I'm okay with you and you're the one I want. I told you I'd kill you. I've still got my gun in my hand. Vickery had his gun, and so did Hanley. Look at them. Yeah, you did pretty well. Made it look like they shot each other. And now it's your turn, Dollar. No! Get back! Okay, Johnny? Yeah, just a nick. Hey, get a doctor, will you?
5: Yes, sure.
3: Well, Sheriff? Uh... I guess...
2: <laughs> I guess I kind of forgot some.
3: Yeah, what's that?
6: The part of a, about the falling out
2: among thieves, dollar.
3: That was Sheriff Doherty's last statement. He died on his way to the hospital. Roy Vickery recovered and was arraigned on charges of murder, conspiracy, 28 counts all told. Chief Hanley was dead. Expense account, item 18, $62, board and room. Item 19, $58, miscellaneous. Item 20, $164, transportation back to Hartford. Total expense account, $2,385.03. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
2: Now, here's our star to tell you about next week's exciting
3: story. Next week, the Jolly Roger fraud matter. And, uh, yeah, that means piracy. Of a kind that would have made Captain Kidd look like a bungling amateur. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
2: Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in this week's cast were Jeanette Nolan, Lucille Meredith, Carlton Young, Herb Ellis, Jack Petruzzi, Bob Bruce, Herb Butterfield, Paul Richards, Edgar Barrier, Russell Thorson, Jack Moyles, and Frank Gerstel. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking.
1: Welcome back. Again, you have to love the uh, supporting cast that they're able to put together for each Johnny Dollar show. You know, it's remarkable when you listen to it. Uh, when radio was at its peak, you could not have gotten that many actors together at a, you know, at such a, re you know, what would probably be a reasonable rate. Um, because even, you know, uh, with that qu- uh, quality of talent, it, it would cost you. Um, but uh, I... With uh, radio decline, um, and production, uh, c- uh, cost, uh, down, this was something that they were able to manage. And that's one of the big highlights of the show. Um, we do turn now, uh, to get into listener comments and feedback. Uh, by the way, I will say this was a, you know, a classic, um, a classic, uh, hard-boiled scene, that scene between, uh, Johnny and the widow, I think just very well done. And you left wondering just how sincere she was at all, but because it was clear that what she wanted at this point was the money. Alright, well, uh, uh, a comment regarding the Plantagent matter. Uh, W Blaine Dollar uh, writes on Facebook. Awesome start. Perhaps a bit familiar, but so well done, I don't care if this is a case of script reuse since it's clearly been expanded to fit the format anyway. Uh, thanks Brian and I uh, appreciate that I should pro I forgot to mention where last week's show The Plantagenet Matter was actually borrowed from a couple of Richard Diamond scripts. Uh, one was, uh, The Lady in Distress, actually borrowed well, just from Richard Diamond, Lady in Distress from 1952. Uh, today's script was based, uh, today's program was based on two different scripts. One was from, uh, a, an episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, uh, an Edmund O'Brien episode from April 4th, 1950, called The Story of the Big Red Store, uh, Schoolhouse. It also borrowed from the adventure of adventures of Sam Spade, one of the later episodes uh, from April thirteenth, nineteen fifty-one, with the title "The Civic Pride Caper." Uh, so uh, that uh, on the origins and the reuse of scripts, and uh, it's amazing what you can do with these scripts when you've got uh, just enough time to really uh, develop the, pro, uh, the, the plots. Uh, We have one other uh, yours truly Johnny Dollar email. Justin writes in, Hey Adam, I love the show. I just wanted to know why the Edmund O'Brien version of Johnny Dollar is 30 minutes long compared to 15 minute version of Bob Bailey. Also, was John Lund the Johnny Dollar before uh, Bob Bailey? And lastly, is there any other radio shows of uh, Bob Bailey besides George Valentine? Uh, play, uh, because Bob Bailey was amazing as, uh, Johnny Dollar. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and uh, take those questions. Um, the 30 minute format, the reason that the Edmund O'Brien uh, shows were 30 minutes long was 30 minute long shows had become radio's dominant uh, format. And then it happened, uh, kind of in the middle 40s that that became the standard. CBS really was committed to the idea that they wanted to do a 15 minute mystery, uh, serial. And I'm not certain why it is. I would spe- uh, speculate that it was because, uh, a lot of the soap operas were still doing okay. Programs like, uh, Ma Perkins and One Man's Family, uh, the radio soaps would, would stay around into the late 50s and early 60s while a lot of other programs were being canceled. If you could get an audience hooked and interested in the storyline, uh then you could keep them listening and uh be able to uh strengthen the value of the program. And they actually tried three different other shows. Uh two made it to air. They did a 15 minute version uh daily version of Mr. and Mrs. North. They did a 15 minute uh, daily version of Mr. Keene's Tracer of Lost Persons. And they also, uh, recorded a pilot with Jack Moyles for a new 15 minute version of, uh, Rocky Jordan. Uh, none of those made it. The one that did ultimately make it was Bob Bailey as Johnny Dollar. And yes, John Lund was Johnny Dollar before, uh, Bob Bailey. And, uh, there was not any radio show that Bob Bailey starred in regularly other than, um, other than let George do it as George Valentine. Uh, there were certainly shows he guest starred on, and we, we highlight those in our listener, in our, app uh, ab extras from time to time. Uh, but in terms of starring roles, that was, that was it. Uh, he made appearances, um, we, we, uh, featured Cavalcade of America, some other wartime, uh, uh, programs, but those were his main starring roles that he's most remembered for. And they're both uh, incredible. The Bob Bailey role lasted uh, more than six uh, years, I let George do it, and then uh, five years on Johnny Dollar. So not a whole lot of starring roles, but he definitely made the most of them. All right, well, now we're going to turn to Dr. Tim Detective, and we'll have some more listener comments after that. Uh, not a whole lot is known about uh, Dr. Tim Detective. It was not in uh, the uh, Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio Programs. It, uh, we know it was a syndicated show. It was put out by uh, Monarch. Uh, the radio disc that it was found on, according to Radio Gold Index, were dated in 1948. I will warn you in advance that this program is targeted to a more uh, juvenile audience. It's, it is. it combines education, um, detective mystery, and a little bit of medical drama. I find it a fun package. I know some listeners may not enjoy something that's got a more uh, juvenile tent, but uh, uh, just be advised. So um, we're going to go ahead and present today's episode of Dr. Tim, and this is the third of 13 episodes in the set. The title is The Mystery of the Guest in number two.
6: This is Dr. Tim, detective, to bring you, by transcription, the mystery of the guest in number two. Being a combination of doctor and detective gets pretty rugged sometimes, and this was one of those times, all right. The guest in number two, we called him. Jill, that's my landlady's daughter, first calling to my attention.
0: Mom's descended number two. You know, the room up on the second floor. To the dog-gondest guy.
6: Hmm. I remember you thought I was the dog-gondest guy when I moved in here and set up a laboratory for crime detection and medical work.
0: Well... But Sandy thinks so, too, don't you, Sandy?
6: Yeah, I think maybe he's a criminal in hiding. <laughs> I'm afraid you kids have developed unnatural suspicions from helping me out with some of my cases. Well, anybody that says his name is Jones is now... <laughs> oh, now look. Some people really are named Jones. Several hundred thousand of them, I presume, and... Yeah, but right?
0: if that's his name, then why are all his suitcases marked with R-W-M?
6: Sure, every one of them. Stamped in gold letters. None of our business, kids. Boy, your mother'd skin you alive, Jill, if she knew you were prying into the luggage of a paying customer. And as for you, Master Sandy, it might be smart for you to confine your detective work to your own premises and not in other people's houses, right?
0: Right.
6: Oh, uh,
7: okay, I guess. But I still think that it's hard for... <laughs>
6: I wish now I'd paid more attention to Sandy and Jill in the matter of the stranger in number two. But you never know until it's too late. Anyway, nothing happened to break the routine of my laboratory week for a couple of weeks. Then, late one afternoon, just before dinner time, I was cleaning up my lunch. Gee,
0: Dr. Tim, you don't mean those jars are full of real blood. Blood from people.
6: Exactly that, Jill. What do you do with it? Oh, a lot of things. Blood's a pretty useful thing, a lot more so than most people realize.
0: where do you get it?
6: From the bank, Jill, the blood bank. And that's just what it actually is. All over the country, these banks keep blood for use whenever and wherever it's needed. Sure, but what do you do with it? Well, that's a long story, Sandy. But it amounts to this. For years, doctors have known that blood isn't just one thing. It's lots and lots of things. And each one of those parts or fractions of the blood can be separated from the other parts. And these are used to cure people. I'm trying to find some new blood parts, or some new uses for the old ones. That's why there's always blood samples in the laboratory refrigerator, catch? Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I'm all cleaned up here at last. Now, what's the news?
0: Mom said I'd better come up and see you.
6: Mm-hmm. A
0: professional visit, she called it. I don't feel so good today.
6: Hmm. Uh, symptoms?
0: Well, I've been very sick in my stomach, and my eyes hurt, and I feel all kind of worn out.
7: Personally, I think she's just trying to get
6: out of doing homework tonight.
0: I am not.
6: Well, let me take a look, Jill. Now, Stick out your tongue. Uh huh. Lay off.
0: Ah. Uh.
6: Sandy. Yes, Dr. Tim. Hand me that thermometer, will you? Sure. Thanks. Yeah, I'll keep it in your mouth for a while, Jill. Now, Dr. Tim. Yes? You know that guy Jones upstairs? Oh, I wouldn't say I know him, Sandy. We've spoken in the hall. Well, I know you told us to lay
7: off, but the doggonest thing happened just a few minutes ago. Well, I was waiting by the stairs for Jill.
6: Ah, the curse of an overactive imagination.
7: Go on. Anyway, he came in with this other man right behind him, and Dr. Tim, I'd swear that other guy had a gun in his overcoat pocket, was pushing it right up against this Jones guy's back. They didn't see me. Before.
6: I didn't have time to laugh, because just at that moment, from right overhead came the sound of a fight, and then something else, a shot. For a moment, we stood there paralyzed. It wasn't until I heard a crash of glass and saw a figure hurtle past my window and streak it over the back fence and up the alley that I could move. And by the time that we reached the upstairs room, it looked as if we'd arrived too late. The mysterious Mr. Jones was lying on the floor with a pool of blood beside him. He'd been shot. Shot right through the back. Looking back on it afterwards, I don't know what I'd have done without those kids. There wasn't anybody else in the house. And if I ever needed six hands, I needed them then. Sick as she was, Jill just gulped and said,
0: Holy gee. Is he... Is he dead?
6: He wasn't quite. but It was a matter of moments. Gunshot wounds can be pretty nasty. Where there's loss of blood, you always have shock to contend with. And shock can be mighty serious in itself. Sandy didn't have to be told. In a flash, he was downstairs and back with my medical bag. One word to Jill, the word police, sent her flying to a telephone, and I knew an ambulance and help would be on the way at once. Meantime, the mysterious Mr. Jones was in the hands of God and a doctor. I hoped I was a good doctor. I remember asking God to help me out on that score. Jones was dying, fast. Then I remembered that blood in my laboratory. (laughs) upstairs in the lab, Jill and I worked as we'd never worked before, while Sandy kept watch upstairs over the wounded man. We didn't talk much, Jill and I, just a few quiet questions and answers.
0: Here's the microscope right, Dr. Jim. Are you going to give him the transfusion?
6: Yes. Have to check his type of blood first with the microscope. Use the wrong kind of blood and it would kill him. Hmm. Good thing I have whole blood on hand for those experiments. He wouldn't last until they could get some here. Now, that solution, please. Yes. Ah, This one seems to match his blood. Quick, hand me that bottle marked Type O. Now, go to the sterilizer. Twenty minutes later, the ambulance arrived. Two squad cars and a dozen or so police were scouring the neighborhood for some trace of the man who had tried to murder the mysterious Mr. Jones. And as for Jones... That blood had saved his life, had replaced the vital fluid, the blood cells, and all the other chemical elements so necessary to keeping the life of a man going. Jones was still unconscious, of course, and would be for a long time yet. His condition was so serious that he couldn't even be moved to a hospital. It would have meant sure death from more loss of blood and shock. The case was out of my hands now, but I'd done my best, and I hoped my best was good enough. I sank down weakly in a chair in my laboratory. And it wasn't until I noticed Sandy and Jill, big-eyed and bursting with excitement, that I remembered the other side of the affair. Who had shot Jones and why? Maybe I could help there, too. But one look at Jill, and I knew her heart was going to be broken. For this was one case where she was going to be out of the running. I spoke quietly. Jill.
0: Yes, Dr. Tim?
6: You're going to bed.
0: Oh, Dr.
6: Tim! Hate to do it to you, old girl. But you remember that little examination we were making? Oh, yes, but... As your doctor, madam, I order you to bed. You have measles. Uh A few minutes later, the house had two bed patients. One, a very sad young lady with measles... The other, a man nobody knew, who had almost been murdered. A third patient, Sandy, was standing up bravely under a light while I stood over him with a hypodermic syringe. What's the stuff, Doc? Well, believe it or not, Sandy, it comes from blood, too. It's going to keep you from catching Jill's measles. Or at least it'll make certain that you have a very light case and protect you for a long time afterwards. What do you call it? Immune serum globulin. Well, let's skip that one, huh? <laughs> well, you see, this stuff is one of those blood parts, fractions I was telling you about. When you take blood from people who have had measles and separate it into its parts, there's globulin... Hey, how do
7: you spell that one?
6: Well, G-L-O-B-U-L-I-N. It works wonders to keep people from getting measles from other people.
7: I'll take your word for it, Doc. Go ahead and shoot. Okay. I didn't even feel it. Am I safe now?
6: Perfectly safe. Dr. Tim. Yes,
7: You know, I've been watching that guy, Jones, the one who was shot. I can tell you something about him. What? He's loony. You know what he does? No. He collects rocks, believe it or not. Just common old rocks.
6: Well, that's a harmless pastime. Sure got him in a mess of trouble. Maybe you've got a point there, Sandy. But why would anybody shoot a man for collecting rocks? Unless... well, unless they were gold or something. Whoever shot him was after those rocks, all right. When you left me alone with Mr.
7: Jones in the room upstairs, I sort of... Well, sorta of noticed that several of his suitcases had been busted open. There were rocks with labels on them scattered all over the room. I'd sure like to know why.
6: It must have been midnight when I decided I couldn't get to sleep. I might as well do a little looking around. After what we'd all been through, I wanted to forget the mystery and relax. The police could carry on from here. But I couldn't. So, I went up the stairs to where the mysterious Mr. Jones hovered between life and death. I motioned the nurse to be silent and carefully examined the room. Sandy was right. There was nothing of interest except the rocks. There were hundreds of them, all sizes and all shapes, and all neatly labeled with cryptic little stickers which said, Northwest 100A, or South G8, referring no doubt to some location on a map where they had been gathered. I took a couple with me to examine at leisure in the laboratory and started downstairs when I noticed a light coming from under the door to Jill's room. Well, sort of late for a sick girl to be reading, isn't it?
0: Oh, honest, I've been asleep.
6: Well, it's lights out now. Doctor's orders.
0: Okay, doctor. How's Mr. Jones? Is he going to live?
6: I wish I could tell you, Jill. The use of blood has given him a chance... First, the transfusion, and then later, maybe you'll need plasma. What's that? Oh, plasma's another part of blood, Jill. It can be stored indefinitely and won't spoil as quickly as whole blood. You use it when you don't need the red cells of the blood, just the liquid part.
0: Gee, blood is sure wonderful stuff. Mm-hmm. course, Dr. Tim, what are you doing with those rocks in your
6: hands? Oh, these? Well, they're from Mr. Jones' room. Seems uh, to be a lot of them up there. Are
0: they anything special?
6: Mm, I don't know, Jill? Sandy mentioned them and I thought She
0: was. I'll bet I know what they are. I was reading in the paper tonight. Everybody's out looking for them. For what? Well, gosh, I forget what you call it. The prospectors go out with some kind of electric machines
6: and they I just stood there with my mouth hanging open. What a dope I'd been. It took two kids to tell me what I should have seen from the very first moment. Without even saying goodnight to Jill, I dashed down the stairs, picked up the telephone, <laughs> and called the Federal Bureau of Investigation. This was a case for the G G-Men. <laughs> It took a couple of weeks before the case was cleared up. My hunch, thanks to the work of Sandy and Jill, had been right. Jones had been prospecting for uranium, the vital mineral for atomic energy and research. Jones told us the whole story later. How he was prospecting for the government, which badly needed new supplies of uranium. How he'd been forced at the point of a gun to give up his map and then brutally shot. The Chi-Men caught the man all right, but never gave out the whole story of who was behind the robbery and the attempted murder. But it wasn't anyone working for the good of this country. Jones had really found uranium, too. And the mine is being worked today, thanks to Sandy, to Jill and to a mysterious substance known for thousands and thousands of years as blood. This is Dr. Tim Detective, saying so long until next week at this same time, when Sandy, Jill, and I will dip into my casebook and bring out a brand new transcribed story. The mystery of the man from Trouble Creek.
1: well a pretty uh, educational program and uh, I thought fairly well done um, I know that we have many uh, educated listeners and if there is something that's uh, wildly um, um, uh, wildly inaccurate I'll certainly be glad to hear any um, objections or corrections but uh, it sounded uh, you know just a Worked in a lot of lessons through the course of the dialogue and through the story. And a little bit of the Cold War at the end, so nicely done. All right, listener comments and feedback uh, continue. Uh, this from uh, Kerry, uh who writes uh, 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 on his donation, thanks so much. I know this isn't much in return for the great enjoyment I get from your podcast. Well, it's truly appreciated. And uh Dale says, uh, "Adam, I look forward to your podcast every day. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks so much, Dale, and Jim Wright simply great job. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate all your support, uh, donations, comments, emails. That will do it for today. Join us back here on Monday when we'll begin the Jolly Roger Fraud matter. Uh, and uh, next Friday we'll have another episode of Dr. Tim and uh, tomorrow, uh, tune in for the lineup. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net, follow us on Twitter, Radio Detectives, and become one of our friends on Facebook, facebook.com slash radiodetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.